I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go lonely, letting go of strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. The Enneagram is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man. Hey. How you doing today? I'm doing all right. It's been a weird day. You know, adjusting to life with an infant at home, it's 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 just weird. You know, it's different. What is the newest thing that your newborn has done? Uh, She and she's been doing stuff for a while, but like she's rolling around a lot and like like moving. She's she's just about to crawl. So, like, it's exciting to sort of, like, watch her start to get up on all fours. And it's yeah. just, like, it doesn't ever quite make it to her moving forward. She's still just pushing herself backwards. She's but, crawling backwards but not forwards? Right. Because she, she pushes herself up, and then her arm strength pushes her backwards. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so she's just constantly scooting backwards. It's pretty hilarious. So. She needs help. Yep. In good news, today we have an expert on helping others. <laughs> we have one, Hunter Mobley, who is just released a fantastic book on Enneagram 2s through the InterVarsity Press uh, series. Uh, Hunter, we are thrilled that you are here. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here with you guys as well. Hunter, how do you normally introduce yourself? Well, I probably as a confused uh Jack of all trades, master of none, but I am an Enneagram teacher, a lawyer, and a former pastor. Um, so, you know, when it's not COVID, I get the pleasure of traveling the country and going to different places on weekends and, and during the week to teach the Enneagram and kind of work with groups with this great tool that we're talking about tonight. Um, and then when I'm in Nashville, which is where I'm based and not traveling, I practice law and just all sorts of, you know, fun, random things that just somehow all fit together, even though they mm. sound like a strange conglomeration of the buffet. That's I, in my super brief Google of you to try and figure <laughs> out some more information of, of who yeah. you are. Uh, it looks like your firm does a lot of estate law. <laughs> yeah. So I felt so, like, yeah. it's like it's the perfect thing for it a is. former pastor it who is. is also a two. It is. I just honestly, in all of my little hats that I wear from Enneagram teaching or pastoring or lawyering, really, ultimately, I'm just kind of working with people in a relationship counseling sort of way, which I love as an Enneagram too. I love to meet people, learn their stories, help people kind of achieve their goals. So it's a good fit for me. Thanks. What is the skinny on Enneagram twos, Hunter? Enneagram twos, you know, we all have shadow and light, right? That's kind of one of the beautiful things about the Enneagram is I think it it reveals to all of us that the best part of us is the worst part and the worst part is the best part. So Enneagram twos in their best lights are, as you mentioned, Jeff, 
givers and helpers and altruistic and empathetic listeners. You know, twos love people. They're people people. Sometimes people describe twos as a plug looking for a socket. You know, we're looking for people to uh, make relationship with, looking for people to help, looking for people to love. Um, and we want to be loved. So that's, you know, that's great. That sounds perfect, right? Jesus is the two, you know, the classic two of the Enneagram, right? Uh, no, well, for all well, those listening, we'll, we'll edit that out. <laughs> but, well, TJ um, and I have controversial opinions on this that we enter oh, about offline. Good, yeah. good, good, good. <laughs> um, so, you know, but with all that helping and all that giving and all that wonderfulness comes a shadow side. And for twos, when twos are not kind of living up to their best lights, twos can fall into the give to get trap. And ultimately, twos feel like that their pathway to love, their pathway to finding belonging and love, which I think is what we're all as human beings sort of looking for out of life is, is we want to belong and we want to find love. Um, we figured that our path is through being helpful and being needed and being necessary. But sometimes when you're helpful and needed and necessary, you are helpful and needed and necessary in codependent enabling ways, mm. or sometimes in ways that leads to martyring when we realize that other people aren't recognizing and honoring the wonderful helpfulness that I've brought to their life. And then I get kind of resentful, <laughs> you know, so twos, like all the Enneagram types have shadow and light, but we are, I think, I think the best of a two is that twos are, I believe, the most relationally and emotionally intelligent number on the Enneagram. And I think the deepest shadow of twos is that twos can be some of the worst martyrs um, and also some of the most oriented toward codependent enabling behavior. TJ, you got anything to add on twos in your experience? I don't know anything to add. Uh, my... I'm I'm pretty sure my mother is a two, uh, and my mother, who I love and just absolutely adore, uh, I I have very strong memory. I don't have specific memories of instances. I just have this recurring memory that happened over and over again of her asking us to do something. And then when we didn't do it right away, the way that she wanted us to, she was just, it's fine. It's fine. I'll do it myself. <laughs> like this, this very um, guilt inducing sense of, of yeah. getting us to do things through through making us feel bad for not being helpful. Sure. <laughs> that was a thing that, that my... <laughs> but she was also an incredibly self-sacrificing person in, our, in my life and, and sort of trained that into me through behavior. So. Well, and there's, you know, I think on that, because I, I can be guilty of all that, DJ, too. It's like there's a little bit of a push-pull dynamic for Enneagram 2s where... We don't, we don't want to do everything. We want other people to help. But then also the way that we know ourselves is as the person who does get it done and does. Mm -hmm. so, so when I find myself in your mother's shoes in that example, it is this kind of push-pull of, on one hand, you're a little bit disappointed that other people haven't jumped in and anticipated and helped. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, you're sort of glad to sometimes step into that familiar role where everyone can kind of name you the rescuer of the day. Sure. Well, and, and even being sort of unaware of the reality that twos never ask for the help that they're expecting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. 
And we think sometimes that, you know, I, I think that's a trap that we fall into is too, is that I fall into. And I'm, I'm trying to learn how to be better every day at, um, we, because we do have an ability sometimes in helpful, sometimes in unhelpful ways to anticipate other people's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that gets us in trouble sometimes because sometimes we jump in to help with something that nobody asks us to help with. And it actually kind of right. makes a mess. But because we have that ability to anticipate, we put that expectation on other people sometimes unfairly that mm-hmm. can't you anticipate all of my needs in the oh, way that I think that I've anticipated your needs. And it, it is tricky for us as twos to uh, sometimes just be honest and name the things that we need. Yeah. I was going to build on, on that more, but I actually just want to jump right into the fantastic illustration that starts this book. Your intro to this book is really good. Thank um, you. And Thank I had you. not heard the front porch illustration, but I'm going to just read it down, get TJ's reaction, um, because I found this, when describing the Enneagram, you may have the same uh, problem I do, where it's, it's, it's often very difficult to get out this because it's, it's, such a, it's a, such a big system that's about the lenses through which all of us are looking at the world, and how do you communicate that? But you write in the intro, In a house, the front porch and living room are the spaces typically most ready to receive guests. We curate these spaces in ways that reflect our values. We turn the porch light on and off as a way of telling people when we're open for their visit. When we sweep and straighten and clean, it's these spaces that get our first attention. We justify a bit of a mess in other rooms because the Halloween trick-or-treater won't be going past the front porch and living room. The Enneagram describes nine different front porches and living rooms. Nine different ways that the world first meets us. And whether swept up or messed up, our personalities are the most curated parts of ourselves. We've worked on them through the years with intention, just like our home's front porches and living rooms. Our personalities are the recognizable parts of our beings. I would love your thoughts on that, Teach. It's such a great analogy, and it's also hard for me to think about it in the way that I know that you do like this didn't mean as much to me as it did to Jeff because, uh, I identify as a nine and I, I don't think about my space in the same way because I'm a nine, uh, like, like the entryway to my house should be about the same as just about the rest of my house because I'm too lazy to do anything about it. <laughs> and and I'm not really inviting people into that space anyway. So uh, I'm just going to go to their houses. It's fine. Um, but I, I love this idea of um, whether we're conscious of it or not, like that that entryway being being the thing that we share with other people, the, the, the space that we invite them into and and... And I, I, I'd love to go through, like, now I want to go through each of the types and think about, like, how much of the house is ready for guests for, for the rest of, ty- of the types and what do these spaces look like um, yeah, because of the way that the different types in, invite people into those spaces and into their, into their lives, into their personality. I, I, hadn't heard, I hadn't thought about this, but it is a two-ish way of, it, it may be a heart triad way, of describing the Enneagram, that this is what I want you to see about me. Here's the, here's the thing I'm putting forth, and the attention that I'm desiring is going to start, first and foremost, at the front porch. We'll talk about the kitchen and the rest, which you have a fantastic paragraph on as well. But 
there is very much a, this is the, the face that I put forward to the world going on in just the illustration of the Enneagram. What are your thoughts there, Hunter? Well, I think the idea behind the analogy is more about seeing the Enneagram as a tool that describes whatever you want to, whether you want to call it our front porch or our, the front of stage. You know, the Enneagram represents nine different ways that we meet the world. And those nine ways are incredibly diverse, and um, some of them are more externalized and are ready to meet the world and ready for strangers to come in. Some of them are not. But my point with that analogy is to help people see the Enneagram as a tool that, that shows us that there is kind of a front porch and a back porch to ourselves. There's more than just what meets the eye. There's more than just what we bring to the grocery store, green bean aisle, or the front porch when we open the door, or the first time that we meet somebody on a Zoom call. There's more there. There's whatever you want to call that. You know, some people might call that your true self or your essence or your soul, you know, whatever language kind of works for you. And, And the idea of the Enneagram is that our personalities, which are represented by our Enneagram types and in the passage you read, Jeff, what I kind of call our front porch and living room, our personalities block the pathway for people to get from our personality or our front porch and living room to the deeper parts of ourselves. So I think the question, TJ, that I would want people to leave is, is asking, how easy is it for people to get from your front porch and living room mm. into the other areas of your home. That's kind of what I wanted to do with that analogy to ask, sure. you know, is your Enneagram type? Ultimately, if you're healthy, if you're living in really a transformed, healthy, evolved way in your Enneagram type, then safe, trusted people can get through your personality, through your Enneagram type, and actually can encounter in some mysterious moments that can't ever be named or or totally, you know, grasp, they can encounter your truer self or a deeper, just kind of essence of you. Hmm. Um, so that's the question I think we all have to ask is how hard is it for people to get from your front porch and living room to the deeper parts in your house? You know, how, how much do you reveal your vulnerable true self to safe people that, you know, are deserving of your vulnerable true self? Yeah. I got a question for TJ on that to build on what you're saying, Hunter. Is that specifically, does that strike you as a heart triad thing as well? The being very aware of how you are presenting yourself. Because just for myself, Hunter, I never think about that. Like if, if people ask me candid questions directly, I'm, I am I tend to be exceedingly honest about them. Like, you want to go there? Let's go there. Um, and I don't think there's anything, you know, uh, praiseworthy of, necessarily about that. I think actually it gets me in trouble frequently that, that I'm n- not able to separate the rooms in my house as it were. But it seems like two, threes and fours actually are very aware of here's what I'm unveiling to the rest of the world. Do you got thoughts on that teacher? Uh, I think the analogy still stands. Do you- I agree with you, but I think the analogy still stands. Uh, like, like thinking about your house, your house is pretty much open to anyone who comes in the front door. Like that's, 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 you don't really care about your house. Your three wife does though. That's my point. 
Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, like the analogy still works. Like you as a one, you don't think about it in that way. But but like the the front porch living room sort of like I I think you're just demonstrating that that the analogy works. Right. Hunter, yeah. are you married? <laughs> I'm not. You are not married. Do you um your best what's the type of your best friend or one of or the parent that you're closest to? Uh a nine. Do you find that they would have the same sort of posture or understanding of here's why I reveal, here's what I hold back in terms of personality? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I'm even talking about a sense of do we keep ourselves from being totally transparent or honest. I mean, I think Enneagram type is different than a am I kind of a straightforward, honest person or not. I think what I think holds up for all the Enneagram types is this idea that there is this layer of personality reflected by all the nine Enneagram types. And they're all very different. They're all very, very diverse. And behind that layer of personality, there are just, there's other stuff that make us up. You know, we all are, our Enneagram type is reflected by our defense mechanisms, our coping mechanisms, our ways of just making it through life and through relationships and navigating difficult moments and great moments. Um, And our Enneagram numbers help us. You know, they're not bad. Sometimes people misunderstand and think, is the Enneagram trying to kind of break that down or, or would the goal be that you've evolved so much that you don't represent a type anymore or that you've you know, kind of graduated from your Enneagram number. No, they help us. Um, Our personalities just help us navigate the daily affairs of our life. But there are deeper places beyond, behind, through, wherever you want to kind of visualize it located, deeper places beyond our personality. And I think for all nine types, that's true. And yes, there are some types that are more forthcoming with who they are and just, you know, kind of speaking truth. And there are some types that are more private and more reserved, but with all of us, our Enneagram type is kind of a layer to the onion and there, but there's a core to the onion and that core is mysterious. Um, It's part of our spiritual self, you know, however you access kind of spirituality, it's part of our spiritual self. And if we don't learn how to name and navigate some of those layers to the onion, and there's more layers than just Enneagram type and personality. I mean, trauma, the street you grew up on is a layer, uh, you know, your birth order, <laughs> your, your gender, you know, whatever, all these things are layers. And we've got to learn how to recognize the ways in which they influence our responses to life and our reactions to life and the ways in which sometimes they block us from actually getting to the core. Mm. We're going to talk a lot more about that when we get to affect, because I, I see that for, for myself, I feel like I'm like not constantly self-focused, but very inwardly aware, but, but for twos, for twos, fives, and it's oftentimes the 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 inner life might be some, might be a place that requires a real transition, a journey, a turning of the eyes inward, more so than other types. Am I wrong there? Well, no. You know, there are definitely um, twos have to do kind of some extra work to draw from 
sometimes the kind of inner deep self because twos are so externalized, you know, um, and I would say fives, you know, don't have to do quite as much work as twos have to do in that regard. You know, fives sometimes have to kind of push themselves from being internalized to externalizing some of what's going on inside um, and to, to take action based on that. So, you know, each of our Enneagram types is different in that. Um, you know, traditionally, we think sometimes about ones and twos and sixes, of course, as being a little bit more just oriented to making decisions based on external feedback loops mm-hmm. and external feedback mechanisms. And we think about sometimes fours and fives and nines as making the big decisions of life by just kind of drawing on their deep interior well of experience and thought and belief. And we think about threes and sevens and eights as kind of moving between those two places and um, flexing a little bit, sometimes drawing from internal experience, sometimes drawing from external loops and feedback mechanisms. So we're all, we're all different in that regard. That's all well put. Again, the intro to the the book is worth the price of the book. Um, the the illustration that you build on on front porches, house, the depth of people's homes, just just gold. Um, as to as our front porches and living rooms look like helpful, attentive, and emotionally intelligent responders, we have well curated our reputations as people who can be counted on. We're the people of yes. But beyond our front porches and living rooms are a diversity of unexpressed and unmet feelings and needs. Tiredness, loneliness, grief, and disappointment, and longing live beside joy, gratitude, and hope in our kitchens, dens, and bedrooms. You hear anything there, TJ? I think this um, this is a great way of, of describing the complication with the word helper as a description for twos. Like, I, I, I think that... Um, like it, it's a great shorthand. Like all all of the names for the types, they're they're good shorthands for certain qualities, but but they carry a lot of baggage. And and I think this is this is a good way of sort of expressing that that twos are are that sort of self sacrificial. They're they're giving. They're they you ask them to do something, and they've already said yes before you finished whatever you're asking for. But but they neglect themselves a lot. They and they don't not only do they not do what they need, but they don't pay attention to what they need as much. And, and it's because they're, they're spending so much of that energy giving to other people. And, and um, yeah, this is a leaning into that analogy. This is a great way of, of showing that like, there's so much more to twos than just what they can do for other people. Yeah. You got thoughts here, Hunter? Well, you know, the first thing to kind of piggyback on something TJ mentioned is I don't, when I travel and teach the Enneagram, I don't use a name descriptor for each of the Enneagram numbers. I talk about type one and type Mm -hmm. two and type three, you know, I I use the numbers and it's because ultimately I think the Enneagram is most helpful as a tool that identifies what motivates us and what drives Mm -hmm. us. And I don't love that some Enneagram teachers have named, have used kind of a behavior-oriented name to describe a number that ultimately is about motivations and desires and longings and dreams. And so, you know, similar to what TJ is saying, you know, twos are a lot of times described as either the helper or the giver, but it's too simplistic and sometimes right. problematic to use that kind of language. So I, I think in that section, Jeff, the, of the book, I'm beginning to try in the introduction to help 
people, especially people who aren't twos, who may find this, their hands on this book, um, to understand that, you know, like all the Enneagram types, there's a lot going on behind the externalization of twos, which often comes across as somebody who does want to jump in and does want to help and does want to uh, kind of become an indispensable party to the people that they love and the people that love them. But behind that desire to help oftentimes is, is a hidden dream that other people will kind of notice the neediness of a two and jump in and kind of come save and rescue the two who mm-hmm. has is, is feeling spent and feeling exhausted from a lifetime of trying to find love and belonging through their role as a helper or as a giver. That's wonderful. I haven't heard that before in terms of just sticking to the numbers. That's a, that's fantastic. I'm going to, I'm going to meditate on that. Well, you know, I'd say one thing about that, Jeff, too. I mean, you know, it's tricky because there's never been a universal Enneagram consensus about very many things, as you know, of course, Mm -hmm. there's, there's not even, there's lots of ways of even thinking about what in the world the lines between the numbers mean and all sort, you know, what numbers really should we put together in triads and groupings of three, but um, there's never been consensus about even how we name those numbers. So I think it's especially tricky for new people encountering Enneagram to, are they going to hear the eight as the boss or the challenger? Well, those are, that's a really different thing, you know, to, right. <laughs> those, those carry just really different connotations from the beginning. Um, and so that's, that's one of the other reasons why I don't love the, the type of names, you know, I think in a way the beauty of the Enneagram is, um, you know, the numbers can stand on their own and ultimately reflect motivations. And when I'm describing the Enneagram numbers very quickly, I usually choose to focus on the the childhood wound, kind of the wounding message mm-hmm. that characterizes each number as kind of the the base or foundational way of understanding each of the nine types. You you mentioned motive a handful of times. I would love to push just as deep as possible there for a two. If you're talking to a two about the most essential motive that's taking place in their heart, that is filtering their experiences and how they're reading relationships, how do you how would you talk about that? Well, I think it's fair to say that for twos, because twos are so relationally focused and they are are in the heart triad as we've talked about. Um, and they're feeling dominant and feeling oriented, that the underlying foundational motive for twos is to be in relationships where love exists, <laughs> where, mm. where twos can give love and where twos can receive love. Twos want to be in a mutual relationship that is strong and steady and stable and lasting. I mean, that's that's in so many ways the foundation of twoness. And so then there's all these kind of secondary motives that come when we just do any kind of action. So sometimes our giving and our helping and whatever we're doing in the moment has this secondary motive of, okay, so if I, if I give to you, if I help you, if I kind of save the day, if I jump in and play the part of the fixer for you, then will you, will you give me this mutuality of maybe this love that I feel for you? Will you give that back to me? And, and there's all these kind of secondary motives that come in that sometimes pollute (laughs) our actions uh, and, and can, can actually do the opposite. I mean, all of us know that 
sort of the caricature of somebody who just gives too effusively, um, always with a little bit of a string attached is somebody that really people want to kind of run away from, right? And so, you know, when, when our kind of motives are, are too polluted, then we actually get the opposite of what we want. You know, we get people running away from us rather than people running to us. But uh, at the end of the day, twos want to be loved and they want to love. What do you hear there, TJ? I'm reminded of, um, we had this a little bit of this conversation with uh, Sean Palmer when we interviewed him about his book on, on threes, 40 Days on Threes. And uh, <clears throat> that's, that's sort of his lens for the whole Enneagram, that is that each type, that, that personality is based on figuring out how to love and be loved. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm just hearing like within that, that heart triad, hearing very similar uh, ideas about like this, this is about loving and, and receiving, giving and receiving love. And that's like, that's the core motivation there. Um, and just figuring out how to do that and putting pieces and, and, and layers and, and complexity on top of that. But really it's, it all comes down to figuring out how to give and receive love. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, the foundation in some ways for all of us, like you say, TJs, we're all looking for the same things, you know, and I, sometimes I use the language, I use the language in this book of love and belonging as something mm-hmm. that I think we're all looking for. You know, I think a third thing is meaning, you know, and mm-hmm. those all go, go hand in hand, love, belonging, meaning, all nine Enneagram types at the core are looking for that. We find love and meaning and belonging in really different ways. We feel really different ways about it. We think really different ways about it. We approach in really different ways, love and meaning and belonging, but that's the foundation. And twos specifically find that or try to find that through emotional empathy, through anticipating people's needs, through becoming indispensable to people who they love. And to generally being seen, as I mentioned in the book, as people of the yes. Yes, I'd love to join you. Yes, I'd love to help you. Yes, I can do that with you. Yes, let's do that together. Boom. We're going to walk through each of the four uh, triads with twos. And we're going to start with the intelligence center. Um, Twos, uh, build on any of this, if you would. Uh, Twos intelligence center. It's going to be the heart triad, the, how they perceive the world is through their heart. There's a focus on self-image and identity. Um, twos, like threes and fours, desire attention. Um, there was one entry that you had in, in – um, are you all calling these devotionals or books or is, the, is there a shorthand? Well – I know there is a uh, Enneagram Daily Reflections is IVP That's what it sort is, of reflections. language. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, I, you know, I'll say on that, it's, I think, you know, some people will read this as kind of sit down and read it all in a setting. Some people will want to kind of walk through it on a, on a 40 day basis as it's designed, but however you approach it, I think it's kind of the beautiful thing I think about this series, what made me excited to be a part of it is, um, Whenever you're reading an Enneagram book or whenever you're attending an Enneagram lecture or listening to a podcast, most often you're hearing other numbers taught by someone who's not that number. Mm-hmm. And I think this whole series is exciting to hear each number described in sort of almost a memoir fashion by a person who is that number. Mm-hmm. And 
we all, you know, have unique experiences and ways of describing ourselves. So there'll be things about my book about twos that some twos will resonate with, some twos won't. Um, but ultimately it's exciting, I think, to kind of, you know, I, I think that's why I'm excited to read all of them because I want to hear the numbers and the experiences of lived life in those numbers described by people who, who inhabit that number. Yeah, same. Agreed. Uh, on day 20 of your, of your reflections, you write, as I'm writing this entry, there's a conversation that I'm putting off having about resigning from a committee that I have wanted to resign uh, from for two years. When I was asked to serve on the committee five years ago, I really didn't have the time or heart for it. And you build this story. And one of the things uh, that you were elevating from the story, as you said, excess in my tuness most often comes when I say yes to something when I really want to say no. And that seemed to get to the core of motive for me there. Um, what do you hear there, TJ? Uh, well, the, um, the first thing that stood out to me with that specific passage is um, that you, it, it tickles me that, that you said you've been, you're putting off resigning from something that you wanted to resign from two years ago, but you didn't want to join it in the first place. Right. Absolutely. And, and I'm like, part of me is curious, are, are you aware of like the, the sort of reframing that you did there <laughs> of like, like you, you should have said no in the first place. Sure. Of but course. You're still saying that you should have resigned only two years ago. Like you're okay with having served <laughs> the three years. Sure. Even though sure you right. But also, like the, um, there's a very common thing within twos is is saying yes when you should say no, and and Suzanne very frequently talks about like what is mine to do, and that's that's been her life lesson for the last several years is is figuring out what's hers to do, and learning when it is okay to say no when she needs when she her instinct is to say yes. Um, I'm just curious, like how, how that, how that journey is going for you and, and how, how are you figuring out how to give yourself permission and, and, and when to say no, like when, like when, when in the, in the process do you figure out that you need to say no? Sure. You know, I, that's a lifelong journey for twos is one thing to say, because saying no to an invitation to a two is a stressful thing. Mm. And um, there's a couple things that I do personally in my own journey each day of learning, you know, just the other day, I just two days ago, I had uh, somebody in my law practice, you know, hey, can you help me with this? Uh, gives me a big description of what the project is. And I know it's just a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit outside of just kind of my you know, what, what I can do efficiently and what I know I can do really well. Um, I had to kind of make sure I didn't just respond to that email in the moment mm -hmm. because initially, you know, somebody I love, it would be a good referral source. It's a well-regarded person in the community. It would be financially lucrative, you know, all these things. And in the moment, it's like, yeah, sure. You know, thanks for asking me. Mm -hmm. But I'm one, you know, and Suzanne talks about, you know, Suzanne and I are good friends. We kind of swap tips. You know, she doesn't carry her calendar with her, for example. You know, that's a, sure. because she knows she wants, she knows she needs to be able to say, if you say, hey, next Friday night, 5 p.m., my place, can you be there? 
she needs to be able to say, hey, you know, I'll let me circle back <laughs> to you in a few hours yeah. Yeah. once I get my calendar. And I have to build in some of those things for myself too. And one of the questions that I'm learning to ask myself is, is this something that only I can or will do? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the answer needs to be yes to both. Because if it's something that uh, a lot of other people can do, let's bless them to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and let's yeah. bless me to not do it. Um, is it something, you know, that nobody else will, do? you know, is this something that only I can or will do? That's a helpful question to me as a two. And, and finally, I'll say, you know, there's a line running between twos and eights on the Enneagram figure. Mm-hmm. And um, different Enneagram teachers have different language, of course, for exactly what those lines mean. In the school of the Enneagram, mostly influenced by kind of the Jesuit teaching the Enneagram that Suzanne teaches from as well, we talk about that line between two and eight representing a move that twos can make when they're in times of stress to go kind of get some extra stuff from eight to help them. And one of the things that I am learning to go get from eight is a better boundary around my time and around my interests and my needs and my passions, which often can involve saying no mm-hmm. to someone else's invitation, because that is ultimately going to steal my ability to get to the things that I really know I need to get to. And so I think a helpful tool for twos is to learn from our friendly neighborhood eight (laughs) that we have this line of access to and learn how we can go toward eight and actually access some better boundaries and access the ability to say no. Hmm. When, can you put your finger on the things you need to get to? Well, for one, I need to get to some quiet understanding of how I really feel and how I'm really doing in any given moment and what I really want. And as a two, nines sometimes have a similar problem as twos in this. There are, there are goals and dreams and things that I want to get to in my life, but I will too quickly sometimes set them aside to work on a goal or dream or a project of somebody else. Um, so, you know, writing this book was a, uh, a good lesson in, you know, having to, as you all know, you all write, you all do all sorts of, you know, kind of creative things that require lots of hours of solo time on your own, focused on a dream or a project or a goal. And um, daily, as I was writing this book, of course, I was presented with little fires to put out for other people or little things Mm. to attend to or little invitations or little projects that people that I love were a part of that I could jump in on. And, um, you know, with, with just a track record of success and failure, you learn how to start to prioritize your stuff because you realize at the end of the day, the stuff that's in you to do, whatever, again, whatever language, you know, whether that's the language of calling or meaning making or vocation, whatever's in you to do, that's the stuff that nobody else can or will get to. And that's the stuff you must get to. Let's talk about underlying feelings for twos. You routinely mention this as, as shame. You, you mentioned earlier that there's a, what, there's a lot of fluidity and opinion in Enneagram circles about what it's the nice right answer is. 
um, about certain things. I've, I've heard that this is from another two that they aren't as comfortable with, with shame as the description of the underlying feeling. And I was hoping for, for, for your insight on this, they put their fingers on something more like relational anxiety, but is it the case that for you, shame actually is the thing underlying feeling wise for, for twos that do you identify with that language? Yeah, it fit, it fits for me, but I, I hear from twos that say that too. You know, some people, uh, actually will talk about the two, three, four kind of grouping of numbers is sort of the grieving triad. You know, that's another set of language that works for some people in those numbers too, instead of shame or instead of relational anxiety, but shame, shame works for me. You know, nobody, nobody loves to raise their hand to really any of the core emotions on the Enneagram. You know, you talk, you lead an Enneagram seminar and you say, today, we're going to talk about anger and fear and shame, you know, which one would you rather have? And and the truth is, of course, uh, we all experience these. There's, there's free-floating anger, fear, and shame just falling down like rain all around us. And, but as a two, I do find that for me, the one that I just you know, have a little bit stickier Velcro to is shame. And um, the, the reason why I resonate with that is I do resonate with the two kind of idea that where I wonder if I wasn't really needed or I wasn't really all that helpful, or I didn't really have something to bring to the table to the people that I love, why would they still want me? You know, that, that's just, that's still just a question that's way back there that of course, you know, uh, just a lifetime of work to attack that yeah. sort of fundamental thing. But so, so for me, that does that idea of there's just this kind of underlying shame that just kind of permeates, you know, and I think, relational anxiety is a part of that shame for me because there's a, you know, one of the reasons why I struggle sometimes to say no is because of that relational anxiety of, well, if I say no this time, then probably that relationship is over. And ultimately there's shame in that. <laughs> there's anxiety in that. Yeah. There's kind of existential grief in that. Um, but I, I do resonate with shame as kind of a core emotion. You know, when I think about these core emotions, guys, as, as in a way like a cork in a bottle, you know, all the other emotions are there. I mean, mm -hmm. there's anger in me, there's loneliness in me, there's joy in me, whatever all the emotions are there. But it's like for those other emotions to get expressed in the right ways and in helpful ways or to get released so that they can happen and then be over, you got to deal with the cork in the bottle. You got to kind of mm. take that out so the others can kind of flow naturally. And, and shame is sort of that cork that kind of gets some of those other emotions stuck or some of those other emotions get retranslated sometimes into shame before they can actually be dealt with on their own. Mm. You know, so, so for me, you know, sometimes when I should be angry, my first reaction, if I'm not doing well and I'm kind of not doing my growth, therapeutic, spiritual work to try to live healthily in my number, if I should be angry, I'll find myself in kind of this shame cycle or this shame mm. spiral. And then sometimes, you know, a friend or somebody that can kind of mirror what's going on with me and kind of help me work through this can help me understand, well, aren't you just angry about that? What if you just what if you just experience anger and don't have to kind of retranslate that as shame in some way? Yeah. Um, you got thoughts on that, TJ? I'm just thinking about that for, for myself as, as a nine, I, 
I relate uh, a little more cleanly with anger than uh, most nines do. Um, I'm very aware of my anger and that it's there constantly. Like, like it's sort of like the Hulk. I'm always angry. Um, and, but it doesn't ever come out of me appropriately. And, and dealing with learning to sort of conf- not confront, but, but address, deal with, uh, at least stop ignoring my anger helps me get a little bit closer to all the other emotions and, and helps me understand the anger a little bit better. And, and I think that like, that's, that's how I kind of feel about, uh, the core for all of the other types is that like, like, I love that like cork in a bottle thing. It's that like this, this is sort of the place to focus so that you can more clearly understand the rest. Right. And often we have to kind of, sometimes that's the one that we have to deal with first so that the others can live. Right. I'm thrilled that you say shame because one, it's real clean and I like clean relational anxiety is too long. Two, it seems like shame is much more of a past focused word and it fits with that, you know, uh, shame being past anger, being present and fear being future. Uh, again, I like clean systems, but as you were talking and I was hoping you could comment on this, the, the shame for you, it seems to be, it's, it's out, it's about the things out there. It's about the relationships out there. Whereas I, I assume it's the case that fours would experience shame going the opposite direction and be an inward shame. Here's, here's my past inwardly. Yeah. You know, with that, Jeff, sorry to jump in on you, but you know, I agree. There's, I think with each of those core emotions in those triads, there's one number in each triad that experiences the core emotion primarily in kind of an externalized way. Uh-huh. And, and that emotion is externalized and we kind of, mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of um, focused outward. Mm-hmm. There's one of the numbers that that interiorizes the emotion more. And then there's one number in each triad that for, that kind of quote forgets about it, you know, air mm-hmm. quotes uh, kind of has in their minds, maybe moved on or evolved or graduated from having to experience that emotion, you know? So mm-hmm. in this heart triad with twos and threes and fours in the shame space, you know, for, for twos shame is kind of externalized because it's really about relationships and, how they're viewed in relationships and what they do right or wrong in the context of relationships. And fours, it is kind of this existential shame, like maybe I'm broken and maybe something's missing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really internalized. But And then threes kind of like, they kind of put, you know, shame along with all the other emotions in a drawer called emotions to be dealt with later. And of course that drawer never gets opened. And so they kind of have forgotten about it. And that that happens with all the other core emotions too, and the other triads as well. Excellent. Let's talk about stance for a minute. Um, you, you, like myself, are part of the reactive stance. Uh, we earn to get the things that we want. This is how we get what we want in the world. We're both thinking repressed folks. Lucky us. Lawyer and professional philosopher. The, yeah, there you go. And our stance, We've evolved, right? We've beat the Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> we are shoring up our weaknesses. Um. You wrote in one of your reflections, I have lots of shower fights, not actual fights with other human beings, but imaginary fights that occur in frantic dialogue in my mind while I shower. 
I often hear from other twos that they also have shower fights or fights in their minds when their heads hit the pillow at night or fights in their minds as they drive to work. And I was, I was hoping that we could talk about that, that verbal processing, or perhaps uh, that's not necessarily verbal. Well, I don't know if yours are verbal. Is it, are yeah, yours verbal? Sometimes it's sometimes it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> kind of a hybrid. TJ, would you talk about uh, repressed thinking for, for twos? Well, I'm I'm struck by um, I I guess this is more of a clarifying question first before I continue the rest of my thoughts. Are these uh, fights about things that have already happened? Typically, uh, you know, they're they're fights. Yeah, they're fights about um, things I wish that I had said in the moment that I couldn't bring myself to say. Sure. So uh, it's like like this is a way of processing after the fact. Mm-hmm. It's a way and, of processing after the fact. And it's it's very much in line with that um, repressed thinking. Like like ones, twos, and sixes all all sort of get stuck in this unproductive thinking. It's not that they don't think. Like obviously you're a lawyer, you're a professional philosopher, mm. y'all think. But um that that unproductive thinking is is um like sometimes it happens after the fact. Sometimes it means you get get stuck in not being like sixes get stuck in not being able to to decide what to do because their thoughts are just sort of spinning them around. Uh, and this is this is a great example of of processing what has happened after like well after the moment has already passed, and you may not be able to do anything about it anymore. Sure. But you're still thinking about it and and trying to figure out like the the I guess the the rational processing of the events that have already have already passed. Yeah, you know, and I think the the question for all of us in kind of this thinking repressed grouping of numbers that that Jeff mentioned ones and twos and sixes is um the question is what's the focus of all the thinking? And for ones and twos and sixes who do a lot of thinking, like, you know, we're thinking all the time. The question is, are we out of balance in what we're thinking about? Hmm. And, and are we devoting most of our mental thinking energy toward maybe one subject matter? You know, so for me as a two, toward relationships. Right. And, and for me, that's true. You know, I, I need to learn to bring my thinking into balance by not just thinking about me in relationships, um, me externalized, me in the context of community. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to also think about other things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my internal experience, my own feelings, my own thoughts, my own needs. Uh, so, you know, and, and of course, and again, we're always painting sometimes in caricatures when we just quickly describe the numbers, but it's like with ones, they're thinking too much about perfecting things or what mm-hmm. could be better or what needs to be changed or what should, ought, could, would have been done. And then sixes, of course, are spending a lot of time making plans for events that are never going to happen. And so all those three numbers are thinking a lot, but it's like the focus of the thinking is outsized in really one area. Mm-hmm. And we've all got to learn to bring our thinking into balance. Yeah, That's my big, you know, I'm kind of an evangelist about balance with anything. Yeah. I, that's my big kind of teaching emphasis is um, with balance in thinking, feeling, and doing. Balance in head, heart, gut. 
balance in sexual, social, self-preserving, balance in past, present, future, all these areas. The Enneagram gives us all these beautiful clues and kind of roadmaps to show us where we get out of balance, Mm -hmm. where either we're too leveraged or under leveraged. And those roadmaps, which are represented by our Enneagram types, which tell us, you know, twos, you're over leveraged in feeling and under leveraged in thinking and over leveraged in present orientation and time and under leveraged in future. You know, all these roadmaps just give us clues as to where we need to kind of put a little bit of extra attention and focus so that our lives can live in balance. Because I think a balanced life is like a three-legged stool. You know, it's, it's solid and um, it's ultimately what brings us to the deeper places of meaning and love and belonging and holistic living. Mm-hmm. Integration, brother. <laughs> when I verbally process, I feel like I'm trying to get my intuitions around the problem at hand that my system wasn't able to process effectively. I'm all systems. And if, if, the, if for some reason this detail that's coming at me doesn't fit in the system, then it's like, all right, well, I'm going to process this verbally because I my intelligence center is going to be my body I'm trying to get my body or my my feelings that that intuitional side around I imagine it would be similar for for twos that verbal processing can be about trying to get your heart around the thing around that conversation yeah. around that failure yeah. around that future event absolutely absolutely you know and um sometimes it's like I need to hear myself say it before I know if I believe it or I know if I feel it. <laughs> mm. And and I think that's connected to underdeveloped thinking as well, because there's a way in which verbal processing, even when it's done alone, you know, even when it's done in the shower or the car, there's a an element of relationality, of kind of mm-hmm. externalization to verbal processing. And so part of the underdeveloped thinking for me as a two is when it's like, all that can't happen just inside my head. It's got to be externalized before it can be internalized. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, always an opportunity point as well to just recognize um, as a growth point for twos is that no, sometimes, sometimes that can actually happen inside your head and doesn't have to be externalized before it can be internalized. Mm. Another side of stance then for twos is the, is the reactive earning side. Um, you write on day 18, having a present orientation of time for me means that all my plans are written in pencil, ready to be edited or erased if someone needs something from me or appears to need something from me. I'm a responder. I react to people, to feelings, to moments, to needs, and all my responding and reacting gets me off course for my goals. Do you hear anything there, TJ, about reactive types? We can dive into that. I'm thinking about, uh, still thinking about the, um, the way that the repressed thinking interacts with being this, this sort of Mm. pivoting and, and like thinking about the, the arguments in the shower are about something that happened in the past. Part of the, the issue there is that you're not thinking productively in the moment to react in ways that are are healthier. So so going back to your example from before about uh, how you had a colleague ask you for help with something in an email, and um, I wonder if that had been in person and you hadn't had time to think about how to respond, if you, had res- if you would have responded differently, like if you would have said yes 
instead of being able to recognize that like this probably isn't something that you should be doing because in the moment in that in that desire to to say yes you're you're continually turning to the thing that's looking for your yes you know yeah just thinking about the the way that those thing the lack of productive thinking interacts with that pivoting to whatever's happening in the moment yeah and it, you know i think tj it's why one of kind of the growth opportunities invitations for twos is growing in time alone mm. um in time whatever time alone looks like twos aren't naturally intuitively kind of oriented to say yeah my preferred way of spending time is you know spending time alone but the time alone is where some of that thinking can really be brought up a little bit right. um and it's it's where you just have the opportunity i mean twos have to kind of get quiet and get alone long enough to re-engage with themselves and to mm-hmm. leave behind the collection of people that they've been with you know the afterglow for a two of a relationship can last days or hours or weeks or months you know you can you can still sort of almost feel the energy and feel the interaction and feel the presence of somebody that you were with two days ago. And so you have to kind of get alone long enough to let even some of that afterglow of relationships leave so you can re-engage with your own self and your own thoughts and your own set of needs. Mm -hmm. Wisdom. When twos uh, don't get what they want, their coping style kicks up. Um, Twos share a coping style with sevens and nines that they are a positive outlook uh, group respond to difficulty by adopting a positive outlook. Real early on in the book, you quote uh, Richard Rohr, and I thought, I thought this was a, a fantastic way to express this. You wrote, our invitation is to discover how our wounds, talking about our wounds, can become sacred wounds. Richard Rohr writes, all healthy religion shows you what to do with your pain. If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. If we cannot find a way to make our wounds into sacred wounds, we invariably become negative or bitter. And you write, the wounds that have caused us as twos to spend our lifetimes minimizing our own needs and feelings can become our sacred wounds. Our wounds can be redeemed. And that struck me as a very positive way to think about the wounding that all of us have experienced. Um, do you see anything else there, Teach? Well, I, I think I just as a as a common theme, like that, it, you you have to be aware of and in touch with your own wounds first to let them become sacred and and like coming into that space where you can can actually see them uh you have to spend some time on yourself that that's a very mature attitude for a two to even say i have been wounded and it needs to be elevated it needs to be named and needs to be processed. Hunter, is it difficult for, for you to actually elevate wounds and say this thing needs to be addressed? Well, you know, it, it can sometimes be difficult um, to, but also sometimes for a two, because that can be such a vulnerable, relationally uh, mutual moment. Mm. Twos will also step into that moment if there's a pathway to step into it, you know? So twos... Is that is your wound a tool then for connection? Well, it can be, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, there's a both and to that, isn't there? But mm. um, the wound is definitely... And, and, you know, let me kind of 
want to say more about that, but back up to yeah. say, sorry, uh, my my kind of love for that quotation by Richard Rohr about you know having our wounds become sacred wounds is because ultimately I think the Enneagram is the ultimate kind of non-dual system. It's a it's a spiritual wisdom tradition that teaches us that life is not either or, life is both and. Mm -hmm. And we have to learn to embrace the paradox and the mystery of the fact that the things that are the worst about us are also the things that help us and the things that help us are also the things that get us into trouble. And so for a wound as a two, 100%, sometimes wounds are beautiful connecting points for people, places to find mutuality, places to find commonality. I think my struggle and a lot of struggle for twos sometimes is twos, like all of us have vulnerability hangovers, you know, and there's a sense of like, oh, I want to connect. So let me connect really deeply and let's bear our souls and let's really tell each other the truth and let, let me be totally honest about who I am and how I'm feeling and how I'm doing. Twos will step into that moment, but then twos will leave that moment. And sometimes because of unproductive thinking, rewrite the script and say, ooh, I was too much. That was way too much. I shouldn't have shared all that. I bet now they're going to think I'm crazy. I bet they're going to think I'm too much. I bet they're going to think I want too much from them. And, and honestly, one of the tricky things for twos is learning how to gauge whether they're being too much or too little, <laughs> because twos are unpracticed sometimes at self-revelation and self-expression of needs and desires and feelings. And so when twos do get to that, which they get to it in safe ways, but when twos do get to it, they leave and unproductive thinking takes over. And then they wonder if they were too much or if they were mm -hmm. too little. My thinking is routinely, did I do the right thing in that encounter? But this is going to be different for twos. In terms of self-assessment, when you say, was I too much or too little? It's again, relational. Did I upset the connection? Like, was the, is yeah. it, well, is it that the connection's maximized? You know, I think, yeah, I think uh, a beautiful difference between ones and twos, Jeff, is, you know, for ones, did I do the right thing? It's kind of like an objective question. You know, mm -hmm. everybody else be damned. Did I do the right thing? I don't care in some ways whether everybody else around me thought it was right. If I somehow find my way to knowing that it was right, then I did the right thing. Mm -hmm. But for twos, the question of did I do the right thing is a very subjective experience and the evaluator is the other person. Ooh. And so, so twos, did I do the right thing often means... <laughs> Did I do the right thing in that person's eyes or in that person's evaluation? Because, you know, we, we talk about, I mean, I, I think when I'm trying to help somebody, sometimes I have these kind of coaching counseling sessions with people who are between a couple numbers and are trying to kind of land on their number. And whenever it's somebody who um, is trying to figure out if they're a one or a two and kind of between those two numbers, I focus in on this idea that, you know, ones will kind of privilege behavior over relationships, but twos will privilege relationships over behavior. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that, that for ones, you know, it's tricky for ones sometimes to want to be in a long-term mutual relationship with somebody whose behavior doesn't meet the mark. But for twos, I could care less about what your behavior is. Will you just be in relationship with me? And that's why twos are natural born codependent enablers. And mm -hmm. we have to work on that. Um, but so yeah, did I do the right thing? Each of us thinks about what the right thing is in a really different way. And for twos, it's more subjective. 
Yeah. That's excellent. You said that the evaluators, the other person, the first thing that went through my head was, well, that's not okay. Cause then they have control, <laughs> right. which is, which is my core. Uh, what'd you think teach? Well, and the first thing that went through my head was, but how do you even like you, that's just an unproductive thinking spiral because you don't know how the other person <laughs> is reacting except for whether or not they're engaging with you in a relationship. And the folly of the pri- and the pride of two sometimes <laughs> is we think we know exactly what you think and feel. <laughs> we think yeah. we're the best at figuring that out. There was another quote that stood out to both TJ and I, and I'm putting it under coping style because it's it felt like this is about the secondary center of twos, which is the body. Uh, your primary center is your heart, but you're on that line. Uh, with the with the body triad, and the quote was: "As a two, I often underrecognize and underprioritize the needs of my body. I think there are three primary culprits for the, this malaise: one, my core emotion of shame; two, my under identification of my own needs; and three, my over identification with matters of the heart. All of this means that I miss body cues. I don't necessarily have a question there." But the connection of twos to their body, I found very interesting, and either one of you could can build on that. Well, the the first place where I really started to get language for that is um, in different experiences where I've I've been in therapy and I've had some really great therapists through the years. I found that a common question that each of them would ask me, you know, when we were checking in at the beginning of a session, was, you know, how are you feeling, and then. I described some feeling and then they, you know, well, where's that feeling showing up in your body? And, and that was just a foreign language to me. I never knew how to answer that. Like, where's this feeling showing up in my body? And, and what I began to learn is I'm missing body cues because of my external orientation all the time. And my kind of over-reliance on matters of the heart and matters of feeling. And I'm missing sometimes things that are showing up in my gut or, you know, other places in my body. And so for me, that's been a big wake up call as a two is, is learning what would it look like for me to kind of get in touch with my body? You know, we all kind of have different, you know, some of us in the head triad, it's like sometimes we think of ourselves as heads on a stick, you know, and some of us in the heart triad, it's like we're all heart. And then some of the body intuitive people, you know, sometimes leave some of the thinking and leave some of the heart out of it. And so we all, again, have opportunities for balance. Um, And twos are just naturally a little bit out of balance in recognizing and naming and then responding to what's going on in their body. Well, I I also wonder how especially in within a society that's fairly image centric how shame plays a role in that like later on you talk about um the sort of overindulgence sometimes uh with certain activities and and one of the ones that's brought up is is overeating like as a as a way of overcompensating for the expenditure of energy mm-hmm. um and then like I think about like how shame will come after the fact and the issue of being out of touch with your body in certain ways and then indulging in things that, that bring about shame. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'm just, I'm, this I'm kind really of can become a cycle. It can, yeah. it, you know, we all can kind of get into these vicious loops of, 
never ending cycles like that. And, um, you know, something to mention about that too, TJ, is the subtypes, the Enneagram instinctual variant subtypes, you know, this is sometimes not like an Enneagram 1.0 kind of topic, but a lot of your listeners I know have, are, have done subtype work to kind of identify which of sexual, social, self-preserving may be kind of most dominant in any given mm-hmm. season. And it's rare for twos to be dominant in the self-preserving subtype. And mm. um, so it's kind of like two things that you kind of get to think about as a two where there's all this two-ness going on where you're a little bit out of touch with your body, sometimes a little bit too over-oriented toward matters of the heart. But then if, as a two, the lowest, most kind of out-of-balance subtype for you is self-preserving, it's like a double whammy, and you really got to do some work. So, you know, if you're a two who's done some work on subtypes and self-preserving is kind of coming into balance a little bit more and sexual and social are moving, you know, down a little bit, then you're probably a two who's learning how to pay attention to the body and and respond to body cues and name things that are going on in your body. So mm-hmm. some of it is is subtype work as well as kind of core number work. Mm-hmm. One thing you you write about it a handful of times and it seemed like the um the, it seems like the story is being written about chronic illness. And TJ also has a chronic illness that we've talked about extensively on on the podcast and as I was looking at that, at your quote and the positive outlook triad, it started to hit me that most of the people I know who actually have chronic illnesses are either twos, sevens, or nines. I'm sure there's others that do not, but I, I was hoping, hoping that both of you could just talk about that in terms of the, your body is your secondary center and you've been handed something that needs to be wrestled through and your way of coping um, your way of solving problems is going to be about taking a positive outlook. And I imagine that would be, for me, I imagine that would be really hard to take a positive outlook when it's so immediate, it's, it's, it's inescapable. I don't know if that's going too deep, but I would, I would love your thoughts if, if you have any. Yeah, no, I, that's something that um, is really an area of kind of attention for me who's somebody who's in the first 12 months of kind of a diagnosis of a chronic illness. And um, it's like everything, I'm discovering that there's a both and. There's a, you know, it's, I can't, I can't hardly find anything in life that I can really put into kind of the dualistic thinking bucket of, you know, it's all bad or it's all good. But um, except maybe, you know, our, our divisive national rhetoric around the current election or something. It's probably just all bad. <laughs> but, um, but, but with chronic illness, you know, there's, for me as a two who's living it, I mean, there's the immediate sort of sense of, oh my gosh, you know, what if I'm not the person who can be counted on to help? And well, what if I'm the person who needs help? I mean, that, you know, that's feels very exposing and feels very threatening and feels very scary to kind of contemplate. But one of the beautiful invitations that I'm finding is for a two, it's, you know, I, I'm having to learn how to say no, and there's more at stake than there was before, you know, mm. saying yes, doesn't just kind of have a kind of existential burden to bear, you know, as I get kind of mad because I've said yes to too many things and now I'm stressed and overtired. But there's actually a physical toll that, you know, saying yes too many times or, you know, even silly little things. Um, 
when you go to a restaurant with a group and you're faced with, I, I don't know, you know, Colorado weather and seasons are a little bit different, but like right now it's really nice in Tennessee and, you know, every restaurant has a patio. And so you go with a group of three or four people to a restaurant and, you know, do y'all want to sit inside or outside? Well, for the first 35 years of my life, it was like, I wasn't the person to answer that question. You know, what, what would I, you know, I can be whatever anybody else would like to do inside or outside, you know, let's, let's go with what you would want to do. Well, you know, with, with what I've got kind of physically going on, you know, heat is a trigger for me hmm. and um, it can really exacerbate symptoms. So I'm having to kind of, learn, you know, I, Hey, I'd like to eat inside. I know that's a really small thing, but it's actually kind of a little, a little mini growth point for me too, where the journey of chronic illness is also inviting me to be better to myself in a more integrated way with my Enneagram number to actually express my needs a little Mm -hmm. bit more in some new Mm -hmm. ways. And so, you know, there's both and to it all. And, um, I, I am a positive outlook kind of person as, you know, uh, as my Enneagram number would suggest. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm having to learn that there are physical manifestations of emotional and relational choices that I make in my Enneagram mm-hmm. type. And so I'm having to pivot and learn some new habits and new ways of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I have a similar experience that with, I have, I have fibromyalgia and I've been dealing with it since middle school. I'm also 35. And as I am learning more and more about, uh, about the Enneagram and about my type, like when I first started really getting into this, uh, I, I started to deal with some pretty significant frustration about the fact that like one of the most important things, one of the important growth points for nines is is to A, become more in touch with their bodies and B, to learn how to assert themselves. And I'm, I'm not good at either of those things. And my like dealing with fibromyalgia has, has forced me to sort of accelerate that growth point. Um, because I, I have to be in touch with my body. Like I've spent so much time in my life ignoring my body because yeah. I'm I'm in pain all the time and I I, I want to live. I want to do things. I don't want to focus on the pain, mm-hmm. but ignoring it has negative consequences later. Mm-hmm. Um and it's also the case that like like the the restaurant example is perfect. I I I don't like to sit outside because I'm as pale as paper and <laughs> catch on fire if I'm outside for too long. Um, but when I am with a group who wants to sit at the bar at the, at the tall tables of the bar, I can't do stools for longer yeah. than like 20 minutes. And I, I have to learn to assert myself. Yeah. I, I really don't want to be the only one. I don't want to be the one that decides for the whole group, right. but also I can't sit in a stool for that long. And it's forcing me to learn how to assert myself because I have to, because I, mm-hmm. I physically have to. So, Both those answers are beautiful. Um, you're going to talk about some Harmony Triad quotes. Uh, Harmony Triad is how we connect with the world. Um, the affect for, for twos is uh, they share a triad with fives and eights of expecting rejection in relationships. And twos ensure love by being helpful, and so they repress their need to be loved in order 
to somehow earn the attention of others first. Is that a worthwhile phrasing? Yeah, you know, I, yeah, it, it is, you know, the core kind of wounding message in a way for a twos is this idea that, hey, you know, you really shouldn't kind of have your own needs. It'd be great if you were just like, okay, so that you could devote all of your energy and attention to everybody that's around you that has a lot of needs and needs a lot of help. And um, it's funny how similar that is actually to the to the wounding message of a nine in some ways, because nines will resonate with some of that too. But um, yeah, that's a good articulation. So we find love. We find love, we find belonging, we find meaning, all these kind of core foundational things that we're all as humans searching for in life. And we find these through being attentive to other people's needs and kind of pushing down our own needs. And the, and the thing is, it's kind of like, you know, we talk about with threes, we sometimes call threes, you know, we act like they're deceivers or they're chameleons or they're always changing their shape. And it, it sounds really like threes are doing this intentionally. Well, they're not, of course, the only person they're really deceiving is themselves. Twos is the same way. It's like twos aren't naturally just thinking, let me push down what I want right now. They, they do that so naturally and intuitively that they've actually lost touch with what they want and how they feel and what they need. And they have so focused on your needs and feelings that they actually are kind of more identified with them. So that's why if you ask a two, what do you need? What do you feel? What do you want? It's a little bit like a deer in the headlights is what you sometimes get back from the two because that question is unexplored. It's like I've lost touch with that and I have to do work to re-engage with that. I can't just give you a, what do I want? What do I need? What do I feel? I can't give that to you on the spot. Mm. I have to kind of work myself back to it because I have just so over-identified for so long with your needs and feelings that I've actually kind of now tied myself to them. And sometimes with a two, if a two, if you ask a two how they feel and they give you a question or they give you an answer too quickly, uh, you got to almost kind of stop and, and wonder and maybe do some extra work to see if they're actually just expressing what you're feeling mm. <laughs> because twos just kind of over identify with, with the feelings of other people. I found it interesting that on day two, you're reflecting on exactly that. And it seemed to me that this was this is a very core side to, to twos. I suppose with affect, this is how you connect with the world. So I suppose in my own mind and heart, I would probably, if I was writing a book like this, talk about my ideals pretty early on. But you write, I still hesitate to name my own feelings and needs. My strongest defense tactic is asking people endless questions about themselves. And then in a latter reflection, you say, I began to realize how many times I shift my dreams, passions, and goals to match those of other people. I have spent a lifetime finding love and belonging through identifying the needs and interests of people around me and reordering mind fit. I've spent a good portion of my life out of touch with my own feelings, needs, and passions. My core self is underdeveloped. Another way of saying what you just said, but I thought those were, those were really cleanly... Um, beautifully articulated and and anyway they emotionally move me in terms of I suppose my emotion that rises up there is is kind of sympathy that I'm like I could see exactly how that would go and that strikes me as a hard place to be do you find that a hard place to be or is that just no that's just how I navigate the world no it's a hard place to be uh, because you know and that's why to part of the shame 
core emotion of being in that kind of heart shame tried is there is kind of a grief and a loneliness that's an undercurrent for twos as they wonder if their relationships are really mutual and reciprocal, Mm. as they wonder if other people feel as strongly about them as they feel about the other person, um, as they wonder if other people will be there one day when they need something in the way that they want to be there for other people. So there is kind of an existential, and then they wonder if they deserve any of that. Mm. Um, it's not just a, I wonder if somebody one day is going to give to me the way that I've given to them. It's then they wonder if they, they're deserving of that. And that's why twos, it, it you know, twos want affirmation and want positive verbal feedback and encouragement and all that. But twos don't always know what to do with it because of shame. Mm. And so twos will pivot really quickly away, you know, well, thank you. Oh, that's great. That's so nice. You know, thanks for telling me the book is great. Okay, well, let's pivot over here. Um, because twos don't quite know what to do with that because, and again, I think that's, that's shame. Um, I'm also thinking about how, like, there's, again, a common thread, like how many, how, how much of this can become sort of cyclical, like, um, you mentioned, I, side note, I love how you draw you draw similarities between other types, like twos and threes will behave similarly, but here's a core motivation that's different. Twos and nines behave similarly, but here's a core motivation that's different. Um, I think about this in the same way that like nines do something similar when, when you ask them what they think about... Uh, a certain thing, how they feel about a certain thing, we don't necessarily know how to answer. And it's because we're used to not as hurting ourselves. And this can become this weird cyclical thing with other people because then other people will move on. Mm-hmm. And our internal thought process oh, yeah. reinforces the the reason why we won't assert ourselves oh, yeah. in the first place. And for twos that internal processing says they don't actually care about absolutely myself. Myself isn't important in enough. That's such a good point, DJ for, for twos and nines, especially, I think, you know, I speaking about just illness, I mean, I find myself in this bad loop sometime where, you know, if I'm having some day where I really want people to know that I'm not having a great day and things mm-hmm. are tough. Sometimes, you know, I'm, a little bit maybe resentful. The people that I love aren't asking more questions about, you know, how you're doing. But then I realize it's like, well, if every time I ask you, you kind of pivot and reframe and say everything's great, I stop asking. Right. And and that that happens a lot for twos. You know, every time we turned the attention to talk about you, you turned it back to us. So we stopped asking. Or every time we asked if there was anything we could do to help, you said you had it all handled. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, nines, I think sometimes get lost in that loop too. If it's like, right. I minimize my engagement. So other people don't recognize that my presence does matter. So then that tells me that my presence doesn't matter. So then I minimize mm-hmm. my engagement a little bit more and we mm-hmm. fall into this loop and all of us, you know, ultimately that's got to be the greatest sales pitch, I think for the Enneagram or for any, whatever personality tool someone's really working is it, it just gives us some language to expose that and to, mm-hmm. to name that and say, okay, here's the, here's the bad 
pit <laughs> that I can fall into of the never-ending cycle of under-mentioning my needs, and so they don't get met, and so then I under-mention them, so then they don't get met. And the Enneagram just tells us that mm-hmm. and um, allows us to kind of laugh at ourselves a little bit and start asking some good questions about how how is that actually sabotaging me from mutual relationships? How is that sabotaging me from experiencing joy? And hopefully then the Enneagram not only tells us where we're broken, but tells us kind of how we can walk toward transformation and healing. It gives us some ways that, that we as a two can begin to be honest about how we're doing and learn how to be right-sized in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Hunter, how do you know when you are authentically wanted by somebody or by a group? Ooh, man. I don't know, Jeff. How do you know that? That's good. Uh, That's a good question. I mean, that's a question that we we wrestle with as twos, right? I don't know. You know, there's a, it's like the Supreme Court's, uh, you know, articulation of what's pornography. It's like, you know, when you see it, Um, you know, there is a, there's a mysterious, you know, there's a way in which um, when you get through Enneagram type, this is, this goes all the way back to when we were talking about front porches and living rooms. If there is something behind your personality, something beyond it, whatever that is, soul, essence, you know, I, I teach sometimes from the Christian perspective and I might use like Richard Rohr, some language of the Christ in you and the Christ in me, whatever that is. When, when that meets, when your essence meets my essence, when the Christ in you meets the Christ in me, when my true self meets your true self, mm. you know it for just a minute. And you can't park there. You can't camp out there. As soon as you try to kind of, you know, say, whoa, look at what we just had. It's gone. But I think for twos, because twos are relationally intuitive, and they do have a high amount of emotional intelligence. They really do know when something's mutual and when a connection is real and you just know it and you feel it. And then the problem comes in with unproductive thinking when sometimes you talk yourself out of it. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's a stellar answer. We're going to transition to the shadow side of twos. I want to ask a question about flattery to start. I don't know that I I saw a a reflection on this, but that seemed to me to be like the catnip that might be out there for you. That that on one side, I I love the the radar you have for, I know when I am connecting in a genuine way with another person. Are you able to, to, to name flattery as flattery or is, or is it the case that this is something that you have to mull over? You know, that's good. I guess it, there's maybe a different answer for flattery that I'm giving or flattery that I'm receiving. You know, I think I can recognize it in myself for sure when I'm giving this idea of sometimes twos, you know, I'll recognize I can go on autopilot of just positive affirmation after positive affirmation. And um, you kind of just catch yourself sometimes thinking, what am I really saying? You know, is any of this true? Is, do I really feel any of this? Do I mean any yeah. of this? And so I, I, I do have to learn to kind of catch myself in kind of giving that. And um, in receiving it, again, I think twos, one of their strengths is emotional intelligence. And so I think twos do have a good gauge of really understanding what they're getting 
from somebody else and whether what they're receiving from somebody else is really authentic, authentic and genuine, and they should kind of take it on or whether, you know, it's something that's kind of less deep and more shallow. You expose something that I wasn't aware of. I have always read flattery as something that you are craving. And you're saying that flattery is used by twos in order to get attention for themselves. So if you put yourself out there as one who is overstating the good thing you see in front of you, that person will obviously tell you something. Yeah. Is that how that would work then? Yeah, I think so. Or, or even, you know, I, I'm not so sure twos really in the moment, they don't, they're not really necessarily looking for like a reciprocal statement, you know, from the other person. I think they're looking for like an appreciation in the other person. You know, it's like a two will sometimes flatter someone else so that the other person really sees, wow, this, this too, this is somebody I want to be around. Yeah. You know, this is somebody I really like and I really want. And it's not, that's more of what I want when I'm giving flattery than somebody to maybe kind of say something reciprocal back to me. Um, it's really like if I can kind of say enough positive affirmation cues to you um, and compliment enough things or tell you that I notice enough things about you and I appreciate it and I recognize it, that you'll, I'm kind of ingraining myself in your life mm. and you will really see me as somebody that, that stands apart. You know, I, I talk in the devotional about twos or somebody who they don't want to just be one of your friends. They want to be, they want you to kind of talk about them in this way of like, I've got all these people that I know and all these people that I love, but then there's Hunter, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and there's like this special status, you know, we don't know anybody like Hunter. We don't have anybody like Hunter. You know, that's kind of what the two is wanting. They're wanting that place of honor, that place. Would, yeah. Would you talk about that in your move to security? Does that seems like that is the secu- it, when desiring security? It seems to me that that's what the target kind of looks like for twos. Is I want the unique position in Joe's life. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You know, so right, twos twos have a line connecting them to four, and we talk about twos kind of moving toward four in times of integration or security to kind of grab some extra behaviors and take that on. And um, you know, where I where I personally find the shadow and the light in my journey toward four is when I find myself at the bottom of four. And first of all, I should just say, I'm one of the Enneagram people who believes you can access that move in security in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. We, and the same goes for the stress move. Yeah. We've spent so, an entire half of a year actually on this topic and that. it's become obsessive. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, I'm for it. Um, so when I, when I'm moving toward four and I think I'm getting some good stuff that's actually helping me, that's where I recognize myself comfortable being alone, comfortable being creative on my own, comfortable expressing myself in nonverbal processing ways, um, and valuing the unique contribution that I have to give to the world. That's not about me in relationship, but that's about me as Hunter, maybe birthing something or giving something creative or unique to the world. Mm. But when I find myself at the bottom of four, um, I find myself playing the victim and playing the martyr and nailing myself up to the cross and feeling misunderstood and feeling unseen, feeling unheld and feeling like I'm all alone. 
you know, that's kind of what, where, where I find myself, you know, okay, I'm in, I'm kind of in this secure place, but it's kind of at the bottom. It's, it's like this place of alienation and this place of isolation that sometimes sadly feels good, you know, to kind of just mm. cling to, or good to just kind of park there for a minute um, and get into this spiral about how nobody gets me. Nobody understands me. That's my clue that I'm kind of accessing some of the bottom of four. And, you know, when I even think about that security movie, one of the things, it's funny, when I first was teaching at the beginning of kind of COVID, um, people were asking me to teach, you know, we'll talk about every number in stress because we're all in stress. So we talked about that. But then six months or seven months in, now I'm going and teaching about, talk about every number in security because, The security, security is kind of a bad word. I think of that move as really when you're in the grooves or the ruts of life, like whenever you're not threatened, um, Mm -hmm. you can kind of be in this place of security or integration. So now that we've all like learned this new normal of how to be in COVID, we're actually not as much living maybe in our stress move, but we're maybe more living sometimes in the bottom of our security move because we're in a new groove, we're in a new rut, and we have to start recognizing, are we accessing that, that other number, that move in a healthy way or in an unhealthy way? Absolutely. I want to pitch that to TJ with a question because I've been reflecting on that exact thing all day long, that it seems to me that if I'm not getting what I want in my core motive, sometimes I naturally move to stress. And it's almost for me, it's reactive that my foreness comes out as reactive. Sometimes when I'm not getting what I want in my motive, I choose to go to seven. And for me, on the low side, it expresses itself in a lot of overindulgence. And that can be a choice of mine that I'm making. And uh, we, we've wanted to talk more and more about this, about how stress and security actually, it's not that there's an overlap or that they touch but that there's far more in common with them than we might initially think, especially a lot of folks Enneagram-wise want to say, well, of course you want to be in security and you want to avoid stress. And for exactly these reasons, that might be terrible advice because you're actually pushing into the low side of this other number, and that's actually where your worst self is located. That's been our theory. And it's no, I, I agree. And I think the Enneagram is so dynamic and not static that there's a lot more fluidity than we think between all the moves and the, the places we can go to on the Enneagram. So I think there's ways in which you can kind of be drawing from both of those numbers at the same time. Yeah. Um, and it's not, the Enneagram is not, can't really be reduced all the time to saying, I'm doing this behavior, which actually means that's from my wing or that's from my <laughs> core number. That It's not that clear. Um, you know, I, I love, you mentioned Richard Rohr. He, he talks, you know, especially with three sixes and nines, they make those moves quicker than any other number mm-hmm. just because they're the, the foundational numbers of the Enneagram. And he calls the three, six, nine move the train. He said that train is just going. It's, it's mm-hmm. moving all the time. And it's, you know, it's, it's tricky sometimes to say, oh, am I, am I stopped at three? Am I stopped at six? Am I stopped at nine? It's moving. Mm-hmm. And we all do that to some degree. And, and for me, I, there's places where I know at any given moment, I'm, I'm drawing from two and I'm drawing from eight, I'm drawing from four. And the point is less about figuring out where am I drawing from or where am I picking this up? But it's more about recognizing what's actually helping me and what's hurting me. What's, what's moving me forward and what's blocking me. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And that's what I think we've got to learn to ask ourselves. What you think, Tej, on all the things? We can talk about flattery, uniqueness, or the low side of our security number of moves. <laughs> uh, I want to start with flattery, and I may not get to anything else. I've, I don't know that I've ever thought of flattery before as something more than sort of expressed vanity. I, I guess not shallow is a better way to say that. Um, like thinking about the way that like because twos are so intuitive about relationships, like they can tell when flattery is genuine and when it's not. Uh, I, I don't know that I've, I've thought about it in that way before. And um, thinking about the way that like twos use flattery, but they won't use the shallow part of it because that doesn't set them apart. Like that doesn't make them special. That, that doesn't give them a, a special role in um, like, like thinking about the twos that I know and the way that they want to sort of give off I don't want to use the word flattery anymore because it it's its definition has changed in my mind, but the way that they express the kind of recognition to other people, to me, uh, it's always really specific. It's, it's in a way that, that is like nobody else notices those things that twos are going to say to me. And, and this, this idea of, sort of setting themselves apart as someone that recognizes that and is able to say it puts them into this special category for me. Like, I, like when twos give me compliments, that raises, that elevates them because they have recognized something that nobody else has. And like using flattery as a tool in that way is it's it it makes flattery so much more interesting than the way that I thought about it before and so much more complex. I TJ, you know, I think for some of the reasons you mentioned, I don't when I'm teaching about twos, I really don't use the language of flattery because I don't think twos resonate really particularly with that language because right. of what you said. It, it twos are they want deep abiding true relationship now they they may get that in manipulative ways or they may get that you know try to find that in unhelpful ways and some of that sometimes is over praise over flatter over compliment you know in kind of ways that are just a little bit too much or but it's not usually insincere right you know there is a sincerity usually to the compliments and to the talk style of a two mm-hmm. that's affirming and that's positive to other people, but sometimes it's outsized and sometimes it actually dishonors themselves because it kind of twos can have a way of putting themselves down and elevating other people hmm. rather than kind of elevating themselves while they elevate other people hmm. um, and honoring themselves while they honor someone else. But, um, but yeah, I think for that reason, you know, I, I don't usually use the word flattery um, when I'm talking to twos or talking about twos. Let's move to the, the deadly sin for twos, which is pride. Uh, real early on in the book, uh, you write, my pride makes me want to become indispensable to people 
which means that it is hard for me to free up space for someone else to fill. Uh, on another day, you, you write, like the hub of a wheel, I want all the spokes to point to me. The question, however, is, am I a centerpiece in a way that blesses everyone in the community to belong and be free, or am I a centerpiece in a manipulative way that requires people's place in the community to be dependent on me? Lots, actually, in this book about wrestling through pride. Um, TJ, can you talk about twos and pride? Uh, well, I th- I think this is a great this this center of the wheel analogy is a really great way to think about this, um, and I I particularly like that you phrase this in a way of saying that this is what you want, and it can be good or it can be bad. Because I've heard so much teaching around the subject of pride to say that I shouldn't want to be the center of the wheel anymore. Mm-hmm. So we think of pride traditionally as as this idea of of pointing at ourselves of of lifting ourselves up higher than anyone else and and this four twos like the, again this is such a great way to think about this that the twos want to be the center of the circle and yeah. and and not to be higher than everyone else but to be in the middle of everything and to have everything connected to them so like pride can be like in this thinking about pride, pride can actually be a really valuable way of holding things together if expressed in more healthy ways. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I think um, you're right that twos, twos want to be the hub and um, that's, that doesn't have to be bad. You know, that's part of their beautiful gift that if they can be that in a way that is loving and blesses others and isn't totally... Uh, permeating everyone else's boundaries or something. But the big thing for me about pride that I had to, you know, when I first heard, you know, here's the passion for twos, it's pride. It's like, well, I guess I've got that one. I'm not that proud of my accomplishments or something like that. But the deal is the pride that twos experience is actually an under acknowledgement of their own need. That's pride for twos. It's not about an elevation of, their status or their place. It's about an under acknowledgement of their in need. So here's, here's what I think pride looks like for twos. It looks like me kind of saying, Hey, I'm fine. I've got it all together. Um, which is good for you because you clearly don't have it all together. And the good news is I've got all of my energy to devote toward you because I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And so the pride there is the pride that two experiences is not so much about, you know, elevating some kind of, status or uh, accomplishment or something like that as we traditionally as Americans think about pride. It's about being not being honest about the fact that, hey, you're in need, I'm in need too. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm the one today who needs to be fixed and saved and rescued. And so maybe I should kind of take my cape off and let someone else jump in or let someone else help me. Mm-hmm. That's That's the biggest roadblock of, you know, of pride for twos is an under acknowledgement of your own needs. Hmm. One last thing on shadow and you brought it up earlier. Talk about twos relationship to food, because I've heard this from a handful of folks. And, um, do you have, do you have thoughts on, on just on the abuse of food by twos? Not that all twos abuse food, but. Well, I do. I think that a lot of numbers, any number 
who is extremely sexual subtype dominant sometimes has can wrestle with kind of food as a reward Ooh. system. Oh, that's interesting. And so, but, but a lot of two spend some period of their lives where the sexual subtype is dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, usually sexual or social, it kind of wins the day for twos. But, um, you know, here's the thing about food for twos, that a trap that twos can get in. It doesn't have to be about food. I use that as an example because sometimes it is for me. But it's about anything that is a reward for your giving and a reward mm. for your over-service. Mm. Because twos feel under-rewarded because they, they feel like they feel a little underappreciated and under-rewarded and under-acknowledged. And they get to the end of the day a lot of times and they kind of realize, whoa, I'm pretty tired because I, I didn't really pay attention to my body today. And I didn't really pay attention to the fact that I was getting tired or I needed to do something for myself today. I was doing so much. I was responding to so many fires and crises of the moment. So twos will reward themselves with something, you know, whatever that something is. Yeah. And I think twos have to watch that. And for a lot of twos, it can be t- it can be food, but it can be lots of other things for twos, and it's all about just kind of, in a way, a reward mechanism for your overgiving and your overserving. And the 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 antidote is um, not overgiving and not overserving. You know, giving and <laughs> giving and giving balance. in a right sized way, balance. Mm-hmm. Because if you're out of balance, you will compensate. You will compensate. And if you've given too much to other people, you will give too much to yourself. Um, And that happens for twos. Last quote here is from day 28. You write, we all want joy. We recognize that happiness is fleeting and that the desire of our hearts is for steady joy that transcends the failures and successes of life. I've discovered in my own journey that joy only comes and only lasts when I'm true to myself in every way, when my feelings, needs, failures, gifts, and struggles are owned by me and offered to those I love in honest and transparent ways, naked and not ashamed. As Enneagram 2's, so much of our story is hidden from view. A mixture of pride and shame causes us to blanket our deepest truths under a cover of, I'm fine, tell me how you're doing today. Love the target here as the healthy target for, for all the types is something that we might call joy. Just a, a last word on, on how you experience that, what that looks like for you. Yeah. You know, the days where I could come to the end of the day and reflect in some kind of a examine or some kind of a just an evening reflection and feel like I touched joy that day. It's a day where um, I was in balance in terms of prioritizing my needs along with loving and serving and giving to the needs of people that are around me. And so for me, joy is about balance as a two. And I only find joy when I bring thinking, feeling, doing, head, heart, gut, past, present, future, sexual, social, self-preserving into a place of more balance where I can kind of be at equilibrium a little bit more. And that's where there's the capacity and potential to kind of just touch a joy, a sober joy that's lasting. And that is not about kind of that rewards compensation we talked about, but it's just kind of there. Mm. Thoughts on that, Teach? 
this has been sort of an, an undercurrent of of this whole thing, and I think it's it's big part of of twos, but that that balance, a big part of that balance, seems to come from becoming more in touch with yourself, and and that's that's the goal of of learning from the enneagram anyway is is to learn more and more about your unconscious behaviors and and um the things that that drive you and and it seems like a big part of the path to joy for twos is is being becoming in touch with your own thoughts and feelings and and um looking to see yourself a little more clearly in the ways that you so naturally see other people and to give yourself some of the, the, the care and, and attention that you so naturally give to other people. Absolutely. My, my kind of maybe closing thought on that is there's a line in the book that says loving others is our gift as twos, but loving ourselves is our invitation. And that's the invitation for twos Mm -hmm. is to offer the same thing that you would offer to others, find a way to offer that to yourself and to believe that you're just as worthy and honor, you know, just as capable of receiving that as other people who you offer that love and admiration and honor to. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, Hunter, we've loved having you here. Um, where can folks find you if they need you know, help moving heavy furniture this weekend, or perhaps are real interested in the rest. I don't of have work. a truck. <laughs> you know, twos, if you're a two and you have a truck, sell it. Enneagramhunter.com is uh, my website and Instagram and Facebook and all that. So Enneagram Hunter. And um, I'd love for you to follow me on all that and come see me at some event near you, hopefully soon. Excellent. Well, much love to you, and and we're cheering for you. for you and all the all the things that are going on in your world. Uh, twenty twenty has just been. Uh, <laughs> we have, all the we have stored up yeah. at least ten yeah. years of karma. Uh, Absolutely, I don't even believe in karma, and yet I, I'm expecting <laughs> payouts here for for a while. Big payouts, I agree. Um, no, thank you. It's been great to be with you all. Well. It would mean the world to us. If you'd pause, take two seconds and write us a brief review and give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. You can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. Shoutouts on Twitter, Instagram, and the rest are always appreciated. And uh, I print them off and hang them um, in my bathroom. Not really, but I thought that was funny in the moment. The best thing you could do, however, is share this episode with a two who needs some balance. Yeah. Uh, That's a good I'm, word. Yeah. They would love this. All about balance. Music is by the collection at Greensboro, North Carolina. And Tim Coons. <laughs> you got anything else, TJ? I got nothing. Well, he's TJ Wilson, and he is officially awesome. And I'm Jeff Cook, and who you aren't isn't interesting. Be who you are. That's where the goal is. Burning will come. Burning will